Natalie. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, so f- f- many of you probably don't know this, so uh, Natalie's third grade class actually memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount. So you have no excuses, people, for scripture memory, okay? <laughs> but thank you, Natalie. That was, that was beautiful. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and uh, I have the joy of serving here at the Leewood uh, campus. And uh, this morning, uh, we are looking at a passage of scripture that is very familiar, uh, but a passage is also a little bit misunderstood. And, and just by, by, by way of introduction, I wanted to share a story. I'm a big storyteller. And uh, when I was a little boy, uh, I knew I didn't know much, which probably doesn't surprise many of you, but I did know at least three things. I knew that pizza rolls were a food group. I knew that learning fractions in math class was a waste of time. And I knew that I was a martial arts expert. I was, I was convinced of this. Very much so, regardless of the fact that I never took a minute of martial arts classes, uh, I just assumed I was this, I had tested out of those classes because I had seen the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie 38 times, and so I just assumed that's what made me this expert. Uh, But I remember when I was awakened to the fact that I wasn't a martial arts expert, uh, when I got into my first fight uh, with a kid named Curtis, and I was in fourth grade, and, and we scheduled the fight. It wasn't like it's in this heat of the moment. It was like, next Thursday after school. Is that good for you? No, I've got uh, soccer practice. Okay, and then the final Thursday. So we scheduled this fight. And in my mind, the way the fight was going to go was this. I would be standing here waiting for Curtis patiently. He would charge at me. And I would wait for the perfect moment when I would execute what would be known as the greatest roundhouse kick in the history of humans, and I would place my foot upon Curtis's temple, rendering him unconscious and declaring me the victor. <laughs> How the fight ended, uh, I got the, the only part I got right was that Curtis charged at me. I got that part right. And, and as I'm trying to time the kick, so I, like, who does a roundhouse kick in an elementary school fight? So at this point is when Curtis tackles me to the ground and, and proceeded to punch me in the face for what felt like a week and a half. Like it was a long, <laughs> a long time. And, and so it was at that moment I realized like I'm, I'm not a martial arts expert. Uh, it's, it's true, I have realized this fact and it is a very disturbing thing. And, and b- before you begin to judge me, uh, you, you plank eye people, uh, we all know, we all know that we have these deceptions of ourselves. We don't see ourselves rightly. We all have perceptions of ourselves either that are too inflated or too deflated in some cases where it doesn't match up with what, what the world sees in us. And, and I think that this is something that is very interesting because we tend to be people who know ourselves very well. We look at ourselves a lot. We listen to our voices. Uh, we, we listen to our own thoughts. We, we take selfies of ourselves. We serve ourselves. But at the same time, in all of that self-centeredness, there is a blindness that we have to certain aspects of our personality, uh, of, of our temperament, of even our moral guidelines and standards by which we judge ourselves and others. And, and I, I, I say this because I, I believe this is the very issue that Jesus is speaking to in the passage that we just heard read for us. It's a passage, as I said, that is probably one of the most familiar passages inside the church and outside the church. We know this passage, judge not, and and, and this is where the King James comes in really helpful. We all know it, judge not, lest ye be judged. We've all memorized it in the King James. Good old King Jimmy, he helps us there. But, But this passage is familiar to us and to those outside the church 
And we have to ask the question, why? Why is this passage so familiar? Why do we like it? And what's interesting is that this is also the passage that I would say most, most non-Christians use the most frequently in, in critiquing Christians. And, and, and I have to admit, unfortunately, some of those situations are very much warranted and legitimate, where, where we, are the, we are excessively judgmental in our actions. And a few years ago, there was a book that came out uh, by David Kinnaman uh, called Unchristian. Uh, and this, this book uh, pr- showed the, the results of a study that was done to, to kind of find out the perception that non-Christians have of Christians. And, and in this book, uh, they found that there were, no, or in this study, they found there were a number of words that were used to describe Christians. And one of the most common words in all of their studies they found was the word judgmental, that, that non-Christians tended to see Christians as judgmental. And, and in their book, uh, they have this word in kind of commenting on this, on this uh, finding. And Kinnaman says this, it says they, referring to, to non-Christians, they believe we are more interested in proving we are right than that God is right. They say Christians are more focused on condemning people than helping people become more like Jesus. Are we more concerned with unrighteousness of others than our own self-righteousness? Now, we, could, we can unpack that and spend a lot of time discussing that, that quote right there, but, but as, as any good researcher, I went on to kind of confirm some of these statistics, and I went to Google. And, and I went to Google, and you know how Google ends up being that annoying friend who tries to finish your sentences for you and is never right, you know? So I started typing in Google, why are Christians, and this is what Google has resulted. I, I didn't add this. I didn't Photoshop this. This is what first comes up. Why are Christians so mean? This is what most people associate with Christianity. Why is there this judgmental perspective that people have of Christians? Now, I completely get this. This is a, a legitimate critique, but I want to be also a little bit fair here in saying that judgmentalism is not simply a Christian problem, although I believe that it is a Christian problem. It's a human problem. We, we all judge. We all condemn and despise and look down on others. There's no such thing as a non-judgmental human. They're in the category with leprechauns and unicorns and people that hate barbecue. They don't exist <laughs> or don't matter, in my opinion. But uh, no, just kidding, just kidding. But, but in all sincerity, we all have to understand that judgmentalism is a human problem, not just a Christian problem. We despise and look down on people that are different than us whether it's Christians and non-Christians, whether it's conservatives and liberals, whether it's suburbanites and urbanites, rich, poor, black, white, we tend to judge, look down upon people that are different from us. And we tend to be very quick to condemn and slow to give exceptions to other people. And we tend to be very slow to condemn and, give, and very quick to give exceptions to ourselves. And I believe this is exactly what Jesus is addressing in this passage And so for the question for us is, okay, so, spoiler alert, we're all broken people, so how do we as broken people live amongst broken people in a broken world without being judgmental? What does that look like? And I believe the answer is found in our passage this morning. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew 7. And what I hope that we're going to see in God's word this morning is that Jesus is helping us to see rightly. That's kind of just the big idea for this morning. Jesus is helping us to see rightly by showing us three things. And those three things are this, how we judge, what we miss, and why we speak. How we judge, what we miss, and why we speak. But before we jump in, let me just pray just for for the the reading of God's word, the blessing of God's word, and, and our understanding of it. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that 
that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, that you would open our eyes to see, Lord, where, where, where our blind spots are and where we judge inconsistently and harshly. And Lord, would you, would you reveal to us the beauty of what your word has for us? May your Holy Spirit reveal to us truth. May it encourage us, convict us, and challenge us to live in accordance with your design for life. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the first thing that Jesus is showing us and helping us to see rightly is how we judge. Uh, But just to kind of set some context for us, uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, and and regardless of your convictions, your worldview, your background, what you believe about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to all of us. I mean, we all can identify with these everyday issues and situations that Jesus is addressing when it comes to issues like anger, lust, money, worry. I mean, who doesn't wrestle with these issues? And Jesus begins to, to kind of turn a corner here in chapter 7, where up until this point, he's been addressing more individual issues, kind of what's going on in our hearts, our motives. But here in chapter 7, we, we start to see a focus on more of an interpersonal focus, how our, our exchange and interaction takes place with other people. And so as we see this shift, we're looking and Jesus begins to show us how we judge one another. And I think it's very important before we kind of get into those details, we have to be clear, like, what do we mean by judge? Because that's where a lot of the confusion around this verse comes from, is is what we mean by judge. And and this word judge, it it has a legal association with it. It literally means to make a pronouncement of judgment in, in a final manner. And it typically has an association or a connotation with, with condemnation. And that's very much the case in this passage, that it is, a, it is a pronouncement of one's legal status. And in this context, Jesus has the understanding of kind of our ultimate spiritual legal status in mind. And so what Jesus is condemning in this passage, when he says to judge not, in this case he is warning us and guarding us from our excessiveness playing the role of God, so to speak, where we say, I have the authority to tell you who you are ultimately and what is going to become of you in the end. And this is not something that any of us has the right, a privilege, or authority to do. That is reserved for God alone. And so when Jesus says, judge not, he is warning us from making a claim that is only reserved by God himself. Now that kind of gives us at least an understanding of what it means to judge, but I think most of our confusion comes from what what judge not means. And what judge not means, let me explain this, it is not, it does not mean this. Jesus is not prohibiting us or saying we should never offer critique or feedback or pushback or rebuke, that we should never urge people to repent starting with ourselves. He's, He's not advising that. He's not saying that we should just kind of tolerate everyone's mistakes and failures and sins and just kind of be okay and live in this facade of relationships where no one ever addresses any fault. Clearly, that is not what Jesus is addressing. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson, he, he kind of explains this really well. In his commentary in Matthew, he says this. He says, here, referring to this passage, here, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be human by suspending our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God. That's what Jesus is warning us of, is that we should guard ourselves from trying to be God in the way in which we judge. 
But again, what Jesus is objecting to here is not critique itself. It's not even judgment itself. It is the nature of that judgment. What he's objecting to is the harsh and the the condemnatory attitude that we so naturally attach to our judgment of other people. And what we need to see is that, and, and, or this is actually why Jesus continues on in verse 2. He says, look, you, you, you cannot judge excessively because when you understand that you're judged by that same standard, you will learn that you judge excessively and inconsistently. That's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus needed to say this because he knows that we don't even match up to our own standards that we expect others to live by. We have certain standards and expectations of how other people should live, and we don't even match up to ourselves. I've used this illustration before. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, coined it, but he said, imagine you have an invisible tape recorder around your neck, and it records everything that you say that begins with the sentence, you should, or you ought. When you make a claim on how other people ought to live, that tape recorder captures that, that sentence. And then at the end of your life, you are judged merely by the words of that recording. And each and every one of us knows that we wouldn't even pass our own standards of judgment. We expect certain things from people that we don't expect of ourselves. We expect people to be on time for meetings that we have, but whenever we're late, it's always a legitimate reason. You know, like, oh, I had to stop and get a big gulp. I had to, I had to, you know. And we always expect exceptions for ourselves, but we're slow to give exceptions for others. We text and drive while simultaneously getting annoyed with the guy who's swerving into our lane, who's on his phone. That one stings, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I've been there. We lose our patience with people in in the return line at Target or wherever when they're trying to plead their case for why they should return their iPad because it fell in the toilet or whatever. You know, we're impatient with those people, but once it's our turn to make our claim, we're annoyed with the people behind us kind of breathing down our necks like, hey, it's my turn to plead my case. We're inconsistent. Or think about it this way, a a student who is sitting in their AP U.S. history class and they're annoyed with a classmate who is is disruptive and preventing them from learning and getting a good quality education, but just later in that week, that same student is bad-mouthing this teacher because she gave them a grade that they didn't think they deserved. We're inconsistent. Or think of, think of a, a father who, who objects to their daughter's uh, inappropriate or immodest fashion decisions, but finds himself drawn to the immodesty of pornography. It's, there's an inconsistency there. And we don't judge ourselves by the same standards that we judge others. Or think of a, a, a woman in a, a grocery store who's judging this woman who can't get her kids under control. Clearly this mother is negligent and not able to, to raise children, and then the same mom leaves and gets in the van on her phone complaining about this woman to her friends while her kids are watching the 18th straight episode of Yo Gabba Gabba on their tablets. Like, there's just this inconsistency that we all have. These are all obviously these specific anecdotes, and they're true of things that I've observed in my life and those around me, but we have to admit we are not even consistent with our own standards of judgment. We all judge differently, and we all judge from different positions. Some of us judge from above with these pointed fingers down, like, you should be where I am. You should be more like me. Why can't you be where I am? Some of us judge from below with these shaking fists of, how dare you kind of condemn me, you self-righteous, arrogant, conceited, fill in the blank. We all judge from different positions, and we expect people to be like us. 
And what Jesus makes abundantly clear to us is that we will find ourselves being held accountable to the very standards that we judge others. And if we're really honest, we know that we won't even pass that test ourselves. It's one thing to judge harshly. It's another thing to judge inconsistently. And we judge inconsistently consistently largely because of what we miss. And that's the second thing that Jesus is showing us to see rightly, what we miss. Or in other words, what Jesus is, is trying to help us to see is, is our blind spots, which is kind of, kind of a, a, a backwards thing or a, a contradiction. Like, how do you see your blind spots? That seems backwards. But what Jesus is showing us is that the issue is not simply the viciousness of the judgment, but the vision of the judge, of us. It's not just the viciousness of our judgment, but it's our vision as judges. Look with me at verses three and four. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? Now, while Jesus, I'm sure, cares about eye protection as a carpenter, you know, this is not a passage really about ocular safety, uh, but he's, rather he's trying to show us how we are so blinded to our failures, but we are very observant of the failures of others. You could call what Jesus is describing here blind spots, spiritual blindness, you could call it self-deception, self-delusion, but I would like to call it speculation. (laughs) Andrew Jones told me not to say that, (laughs) but he's not here, so it's okay. Uh, But speculation, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, speculation is a noun, It is a human epidemic that engenders selective vision and memory whereby the victim is only cognizant of the failures of others and is compelled to point it out in a really jerkish way. (laughs) This comes from the Oxford Capital Dictionary. (laughs) I I like puns. I'm a big fan of puns. Um, Now, here's the thing. When When I am blind to my failures and very aware of others and their failures, I am living in a fantasy world. And in this fantasy world, I have the privilege of excusing myself, of, of, of giving exceptions to myself when I violate certain rules, guidelines, principles, commandments. But I do not extend that same privilege to other people, especially when their violation of those rules impacts me personally. I am not as quick to send that exception. And Colin Hansen, this, if I could commend a very, very tiny book to you, it's called Blind Spots. It has one of the most beautiful, compelling Uh, book covers I have ever seen, which that's enough just to go buy it. But in this book, Blind Spots, Colin Hansen gives us this very helpful reminder. He says this. He says, we tend to find in this kind of plank eye, speck in our eye, judgment personality, he says, you find problems at the end of your pointed fingers and solutions in the mirror. In reality, the finger pointed toward the mirror tells you where to search first for the problem. I mean, let's just be honest just for a second. And we we all know this. I mean, especially, especially in kind of an election year, I'm not going to get into those things, but we tend to look at how other people diagnose problems. Like, no, no, you're the problem. If you were only like me or if you were only like my people, then the world wouldn't be where it is. If you just thought like me, lived like me, acted like me, the world would be a better place. Or acted like people like me. Not me necessarily. I'm not that self-righteous. But if you acted like my people, it's the same thing. This is absurd, and we know it. And and to show this absurdity, I mean, Jesus employs an absurd illustration. And this is, this, I honestly think, I talked to Pastor Tom about this, I think Jesus is being comedic here. 
He's like, look, look what you're doing. You are pointing out the speck in someone's eye when you're walking around like this. <laughs> like, hey, hey, Bart, uh, I don't mean, to, don't mean to be rude here, but uh, from my perspective, you know, I'll, I'll stop that because I don't have much upper body strength. It's going to wear me out. <laughs> That's very true. It, I mean, in all seriousness, Jesus is being funny, I think. I think he said, look, look how absurd you are acting. You're saying, look, you have this speck when you have this plank coming out of your eye, a beam coming out of your eye. How do you think you are in any place to judge someone else and help them with their speck? Now, in my research of the, 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 these cases of speculation that plague humanity, uh, researchers have found that uh, if you have speculation long enough, it will make you a spectator. I could do this all day. I could do this all day. A spectator, a spectator is one who delights in observing the faults of others with the intention of creating a false status of superiority in an otherwise demented and deluded little mind. That's, that's what a spectator is. That's my last pun for the day, I promise, I promise. But anyway, in, in all seriousness, just like a speck or a log in our eye, when, when we have sin, when I have sin in my life, it clouds my judgment, it clouds my perception of myself, and of others, and it prevents me from seeing rightly, from, from judging rightly, and caring for people rightly. Until I understand the sin in my life, I can't ultimately be helpful and compassionate towards those in my life that struggle. The point Jesus is making with the log and the speck is this, is that if, if, the, if there's a speck in our eye, I mean, you, if you've had something in your eye, you know how painful that is. Like, I take off a week of work if I have something in my eye. It's like annoying. And you've been there. It was just like you can't think of anything else. You've got to get this thing out. And what that illustration is saying is that, look, until sin looms large in your mind, until you see how great your sin is, you, you will not be able to be helpful to those who are struggling along with you. We must see the speck in our eye as a log. Until we do, we will always see other people as inferior to us. They're the ones with the problem, not me. And when we, have, when we view people as inferior to us, we are incapable of truly loving them and caring for them. We, we, we can care for them in some kind of self-righteous way from this perspective of I'm above you, but until we understand that I am just as broken as you are, maybe in different ways it looks different, but when we are all impoverished, so to speak, that's when we're able to help one another. And this is really what Jesus is getting at when he uses this word hypocrite. In verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. His description, Jesus' description of hypocrite here, it's, it's a little different than what he's used elsewhere, uh, Matthew's used elsewhere. It's not some person who does the wrong thing and knows they're doing the wrong thing, but it's a person who's completely oblivious to the fact that their lives are inconsistent with what they claim. And, and one thing to, to make notice of in verse 5 is that one of the reasons that Jesus says to take the log out of your eye, notice what his motive is. Look, take the log out of your eye so that you might see clearly, for what purpose? So that you might be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, Jesus is not objecting to removing specks from people's eyes and calling out saying, you've got this issue, you've got this problem, let me help you. He's not objecting to that. But he says, first deal with your stuff before you're able to help someone else. 
In order to be truly helpful and truly loving to someone who is struggling with sin, we must first own up to the fact that our problems or the problems of the world are not found in other people, but we are complicit in what is wrong with the world, each and every one of us. The problems do not reside outside of us, but within us. And until we understand that, we will not be able to see rightly, judge rightly, and care rightly for people. And what this means is that we must be honest with ourselves. And then and only then can we address this last point of why we should speak. Why we now speak. Why is it that we should expend time and energy and words to call out sin in people's lives, to urge people to repent, to turn from their ways, to address failures and mistakes? Why should we do that? Well, as I said, we've seen this already, that Jesus is not objecting to critique and pushback. He's not objecting to rebukes. But he does want us to be very clear on the why of why we speak. And the first thing I want to say about that is this, is that the reason we speak, the reason we call out sin in people's lives is first and foremost because we, we want to be in community and relationship with people. To, to delude ourselves in thinking that no, real relationship is, is the removal of critique, the removal of, of conflict and tension. It's the removal of any kind of pointing out failures. But when that's the relationship we're in, we're, we're in a fake relationship where no one has the freedom and the willingness and the ability and the responsibility to call each other out for the sake of improving ourselves. That's not a real relationship. It's fake. The exact opposite is the case. It's not until we can lovingly, trustingly call out one another with the purpose of improving each other's lives that we find an authentic relationship. If every relationship we, we had was void of this, of the ability and freedom to call each other out, we would be robbing ourselves of authentic relationship. So let me suggest a few things. This, just as we think about what it means to judge rightly and why we should speak, three things we should consider. And the first is this, that we need to be aware of our sin. We've kind of already talked about that. But before we, before we even begin to formulate a thought and words of, of what we should say to this person for what they've done to us or to others, First and foremost, be aware of your sin. I need to be aware of my sin. And that's tricky because blind spots are blind to us. And we need the voice of others to speak into our lives and to point those things out to us. We need the loving and observant and critical eyes and ears of friends, brothers and sisters who are willing to call things out in our lives for our good. And we need to be willing to be that for others as well. Psalm 141.5 says this, let a righteous man strike me. Let a righteous man strike, that, that's not an invitation, like Pastor Tom, slap me in the face right now. Like that's, it's, it's this idea that if a righteous man were to come and give me a word of correction, what does the psalmist say? It is a kindness. Let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. And let my head not refuse it. We need the voices of others to correct us. And you know what I'll say? You should invite it. Instead of waiting for your friends to come to you, invite that feedback. A friend of mine just recently came to me out of nowhere, just said, hey, I just wanna, I I try to do this periodically, just have I said anything or done something to you recently that's just upset you? Or have I not said something or not done something that's bothered you? And I was just like, that's a, why would you even do that? And he was, he's just looking for opportunities to see his blind spots. He's like, man, we need that. We need that in our lives. We need to be aware of our sin. But secondly, we also need to be aware of our approach, of how we're approaching this person. 
One of the things to consider when you think about the speck and the log illustration, when we go to remove the speck from someone's eye, the sin in someone's life, we should, we should call it out in the same way that you would remove a speck from someone's eye. You don't go out like, it's like, I've got a splinter, like, you just smack it out. You don't do that. Like, that's not helpful. Like, oh yeah, that's happened to me before. You, you go, it's like, oh man, that hurts. I've been there. That stinks. Here, let me, let me try to help. You gently, thoughtfully, carefully remove the speck. You don't do it quickly or harshly or arrogantly. In the same way, when we're calling out sin in someone's life, you don't do it quickly. You don't do it harshly. You don't do it arrogantly. You do it gently. You do it kindly and thoughtfully and compassionately. That's why Paul in Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in what? A spirit of kindness, or of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We should be aware of our approach. And then lastly, we need to be aware of our motives. And I've said this before in a lot of different contexts, but here's what I would say is that if you have no ounce of a desire to see this person restored or healed or brought back to a fullness of life in your desire to call them out, you should shut up. I am very convinced of that. If we have no ounce of motivation to see this person restored, if that's not our motive, we need to step back and honestly ask ourselves, what is it that's compelling me to speak? Am, am I just wanting to get, put this person in their place to feel a sense of superiority? Or is my motive to see them restored? to see them healed and brought out of this thing that is destroying them and plaguing their life. James 5, 19 and 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. That's the motive that's the desire in our calling out, not to put a person in their place, not to improve our image of ourselves. I, I'm, I'm a father of three girls, and it, I, we found out we're having a boy also, so there you go, there you go, yep. I don't know, I had to tell people. Um, <coughs> father of three girls, and it is my desire and aim to love my girls in such a way that they don't pursue affection and validation in, in dangerous harmful environments and relationships. I want them to know how much I love them so that when comes the day when they're 48 and decide to get married, <laughs> when that day comes, that they are pursuing this person out of love and, and it's rooted in faithfulness and commitment to God and to the institution of marriage, but I want them to know how much I love them. And so it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when I'm at the mall or movie theaters and I'm out in public and I see, I see young girls just dressed in a way that they're trying to draw a boy not simply because they believe in the goodness of, of relationship, but that I see in that the, the desire to be validated and loved because they're not getting it elsewhere. And so my question for myself in that situation is, do I look at those situations, do I look at these young girls and say, oh my gosh, these, these bratty little kids and the way they dress, they're ruining this culture and society and it's going to hell in a handbasket, or is my heart broken at the decisions that they're making that are damaging themselves and potentially others. And I, I share that as just one example. For, and I don't know what that is for you, but ask yourself that question. When you get angry, what angers you the most about our world? And are you angry because that thing is robbing people of the life God has designed them to live? Or are you angry because people are not living like you? So how do we ask this question? How do we know that our motives are in the right place? 
And I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Just a few thoughts to consider. How do I know that my words are going to be helpful and not harmful? If you jump from particulars to generalities, like it's people like you that are ruining this world, your words are not going to be helpful. If you truly believe when you say, I would never do what they did, your words are not going to be helpful. If you can't weep with them and for them, and not literally, I know some of us don't have the ability to secrete salty discharge from our eyes, you know, but, but if, if you cannot sit with them and, and weep with them for what they have done, your words are not going to be helpful. If you can weep and it's only because what they've done has hurt you and it impacts your life and that's it, and you're not as concerned about what it has done to them and their relationship with others and with the Lord, your words are probably not going to be helpful. If you already know the solution before understanding the problem, your words are not going to be helpful. And if you can't rejoice when this person is restored, your words are not going to be helpful. Because when someone is, is less than us, it makes us feel better. And especially when they've sinned against us, but when, when they seek reconciliation and forgiveness and they've come to a place of health and maturity, are you able to celebrate or do you feel that you are now at a level playing field with them and that is an attack on your ego? Are you able to rejoice with them when they're restored? If not, your words will not be helpful. And lastly, do you thank God and take joy that you're not like them? If so, your words will not be helpful. As much as we would like to think that the problems of the world reside in others, especially others that are not like us, we have to understand that by thinking that way, we're living in a fantasy world. And we have to understand that we are complicit and we are the problem. That's why Jesus, in my favorite parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says, he said he told this parable to those who, who saw their justification in their righteousness. He says, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed like this, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector over here. I tithe, I do this and this and this. And then, and then Jesus says, and the tax collector being far off with his head bowed, he couldn't even lift his head to heaven, and he beat his chest, and all he said was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who went home justified that day? And the crowd answers rightly, the tax collector, because he understood his brokenness. The Pharisee was blind to his brokenness, and it led to him seeing someone as inferior. We all are guilty. We are all complicit in the problems of this world. But there is one person who has looked in the mirror of our broken world and did not see his reflection and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And in, in, in fact, the exact opposite is true of Jesus. Is while we look at the problems of the world and kind of shrug our shoulders as if we have nothing to do with it, Jesus took the burden, the problem of the world upon his shoulders to do something about it. While it is our default response to, to condemn others and point out the specks and logs in people's eyes, Jesus nailed himself to a log for our specks, for our logs, for every single speck and log in your eye and mine. And while we find ourselves confused and deceived about who we are, Jesus entered our world to speak truthfully, boldly, who we truly are. And here's the thing, the news is actually more dreadful than we realize, is that we're, who we are is broken, dead, hollow, empty sinners, dead in our graves, pointing our dead fingers at other dead people, condemning them for being dead. 
You know how absurd that is. But Jesus came to rescue us from not just our judgmentalism, but ultimately from the judgment that we all receive for who we are and what we've done. We deceive ourselves, and we typically deceive ourselves in two ways. Either in thinking that our goodness is so good that we don't need Jesus, or our badness is so bad that he could never love me and forgive me. And to both of these people, Jesus says, on your best days, you're not beyond the need of my grace, and on your worst day, you're not beyond the reach of my grace. When you come to understand this truth, you are not just freed from your judgmentalism, you're freed from the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, that we all deserve. The log that is in our eye should be a reminder of the log that Christ was nailed to on our behalf. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer. And Lord, I, I just, I do, I pray that you would, that you would reveal to us our blind spots, reveal to us where we don't see our failures, our brokenness. Open us to see, Lord, where, where we are inconsistently and harshly judging others. And Lord, would the remedy be not just a revelation of our sin and our brokenness, but may the remedy come from seeing that we are no longer judged by you through Christ Jesus, and may that compel us to extend loving words of judgment in a way that is motivated by a desire to see people restored to the life you've called them to live. Lord, speak to us now, convict us, and enlighten us that we might live more in accordance with your design for life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.